0: For the mercy seat that is our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, welcome to the service today. We're glad that you're here. I'm beginning a, a new series this morning. <clears throat> My wife and I this afternoon are planning to get on an airplane and uh, we're going to be flying to San Diego to celebrate the first birthday of one of our grandchildren. It's gonna be a special evening down there. Um, I hope we don't hear what some passengers on a plane heard uh, some time ago. The pilot came onto the plane, uh, came onto the intercom rather, and he said, "Uh, Folks, I'm sorry to tell you that we're lost, but we are ahead of schedule. (laughs) Now, when I think about that statement, I think about the times we're living in. We're lost, but we're going somewhere real fast what I want to talk about is where we're headed. This series is entitled, In Times Like These, and today I want to deal with the question, are we living in the last days? Are we living in the last days? So I want you to get your Bible out because we're going to be turning to a number of texts over the next 30 minutes or so, studying the Word of God regarding this theme of the last days. Perhaps it's the post-election emotion or maybe it's the uncertainty that we feel because of the economic downturn. Or perhaps it's because we read the newspaper and we see the political situations in the world. For example, the, the deepening of the ties between Russia and Iran which happened again this last week. You may recall that the vice president-elect told all of us that the new president-elect will be tested early in his term. I think he's exactly right. You would have to expect that that will take place. Maybe that will be Iran, or maybe it will be Russia, or some other place in the world, or maybe several of them. But there seems to be some sense among people that something is about to break loose. Do you feel that way? Even more, perhaps, there's a feeling that history is quickly moving toward its culmination, its denouement. We aren't the first generation to experience feelings like this. But this sense that things cannot keep going on the way they are naturally intrigues us with what the Bible says about what's coming in the future. And so I posed the question this morning that I want to examine with you. And the question is, are we living in the last days? And right up front, I want to answer that. Unequivocally, clearly, without hesitation, are we living in the last days? Absolutely yes, we are. And I'm going to show you from the Bible this morning that we are in fact living in the last days. Now I'll explain that by asking some some questions regarding this phrase. The first question is this. Where does this phrase originate, the last days? Do we use this phrase because Joel Rosenberg used it in one of his novels novels several years ago? Well, the answer to that is no, I think it preceded Joel Rosenberg. Is it because there was a film in 1999 called The Last Days that recounted some of the stories of Jewish Holocaust survivors? Now, actually, I think the phrase goes back further than that. Indeed, the phrase goes all the way back in the Bible to Genesis chapter 49 and verse 1. This is the same text, the same area of Genesis that we've been studying over recent months. Genesis chapter 49, verse 1. You see, the Bible is the book of origins. And where we, when we want to find out where something originates, we should go to the Bible to see where this idea, this concept, this word, this truth originates. And in the Bible, the book of Genesis is particularly the book of origins. It is the seed plot of many of the things that are developed throughout the, in the rest of the Word of God. And its first use is Genesis 49:1 as Jacob blesses his sons. He is an old man and he is about to die. And the scriptures tell us that he gathered to him his sons. And he said, gather around so I can tell you what will happen in the last days. In the last days. And then he goes on to bless each of his sons with something. But he introduces this patriarchal blessing with the words, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the last days. A good friend of mine, John Sailhammer, wrote the uh, commentary on Genesis that's found in the Expositor's Bible Commentary. John is a scholar of Hebrew. He is able to read 13, 14, 15 of these ancient languages, knows Hebrew backwards and forwards. And in the Expositor's Bible Commentary, he makes a a pithy statement regarding the last days. And I've copied it in your notes so that you have it. It says, the same expression occurs in the Pentateuch as an introduction to two other poetic discourses. The oracles of Balaam, and the last words of Moses. On all three occasions, the subject matter introduced by the phrase the last days or in days to come is that of God's future deliverance of his chosen people. I want you to underscore those words because when you read the words the last days, you need to understand that its origins go back to God's deliverance in the future of his people, Israel, the chosen family. John goes on to say, at the center of that deliverance stands a king. In Genesis 49, that king is connected with the house of Judah. So you tell me, who is the king? Jesus. Jesus the descendant of Judah, who is the king, who will one day deliver the chosen people. Now the point is this, that the phrase is one that looks toward the future. It looks toward God's fulfillment of his promise to bless the whole world through descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and a king who will descend from them. One who will arise out of the family of Judah. And he will specifically arise in order to provide deliverance for the people of God. That's the origin of the phrase, the last days. And so, I ask the question, how is this phrase then developed in Scripture? Now, we can't possibly look at all of the uses of it, we'd be here all day long. So we're going to be selective and very brief, but get the point across. The phrase, the last days, is used especially by the prophets. And we're going to look at the prophet Isaiah first in the Old Testament. You see, the Bible is a book of hope. It is a book of hope. The hope of future deliverance. The Bible assures us that God has secured the future. Now you and I may wonder what's going to happen. But we can be assured in coming to the Bible that God gives us a word. He gives us a hope. And we see this for example here in Isaiah chapter two. Now if you don't have your Bible with you, I encourage you to bring it next week. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, maybe there's one in front of you there in one of the seats. We have some scattered around. But in Isaiah chapter 2, the chapter begins by saying, This is what Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 2, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains it will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. What we find here in this poetic expression is that there is a time coming called the last days in which God's chosen people will be exalted above the other nations. Like a mountain that is raised up above the others, The people of God, the chosen family of God, the Jewish nation will be exalted above others. Now we can go on through the chapter. We don't have time to read all of the text, but in verse 3 it says that the last days will be a time for all nations of the earth to join in the worship of the God of the Jews. They will flow into Jerusalem and offer worship to the God of Israel. The last days in verse 4 is said to be a time of worldwide harmony. But if you skip on down to verse 12 and the verses following, you see that the last days is also a, a phrase describing a time for the wicked to be judged. And so there is this dual theme that is interwoven In the last days, it is the theme of judgment coupled with deliverance and the exaltation of the Jews and all of the nation being at peace and bringing worship to the God of Israel. Now we're going to skip over to chapter 13 of Isaiah and see a term that is essentially parallel to the last days. Look in verse nine, Isaiah says, see, the day of the Lord is coming. And there's the phrase, the day of the Lord. Essentially, the same meaning as the last days. The day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light the rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and so forth. So here we see that the last days will also be a time of cosmic disturbances. Things happening in the heavens. Unusual events will take place. Now this could have some allegorical meaning, some uh, meaning of other things than the literal heavens but I think we ought to understand it literally as well, that there will be unusual things happening in the heavens, in the cosmos, in the last days. Now this ties together actually with what the prophet Joel says. So would you turn over a few pages to the prophet Joel? Hosea, Joel, Amos, Trying to help you get there. Joel chapter 2, famous prophecy. One that is quoted in the New Testament, actually on the day of Pentecost. Peter uses this as one of his texts. Joel chapter 2, I begin reading in verse 28. And afterward, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So the last days will be a time of the pouring out of God's spirit on the people of God. And then, verse 30 I will show wonders in the heavens. And on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so, the last days is a time when the, the gates of salvation will be open to anyone who believes, not just the Jew but everyone who believes will be saved now those are all aspects of the day of the lord as it's developed in the old testament as i say it's a very very brief review but we want to now come into the new testament and pick up the idea i've already mentioned that in joel chapter 2 or, or acts chapter 2 rather we have a quotation from joel 2 And Peter says, what is happening here on the day of Pentecost? These people are not drunk like you are imagining. They are speaking other tongues. Some of them have fire over their heads. what you need to understand, he says, is that Joel 2 speaks about this. And God says, I will pour out my spirit in the last days on people. And, and, And he says, this is that. Now we don't see the cosmic disturbances on the day of Pentecost. So we look at this as a partial fulfillment. So the Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost. And now I wanna take you to a verse that will nail in your minds, if you're listening, the fact that we are living right now in the last days. Book of Hebrews chapter one. This book written about 70 A.D. Some 40 years after Jesus died, rose again, went back to heaven, and the day of Pentecost. Hebrews chapter 1. In the, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But, what does he say next? In the These last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Do you notice that the writer of Hebrews says, right now is the last days. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. Now here's my point. The last days, as the Bible defines them, refers to that period of time between when the Spirit was poured out, I should say the coming of Christ, His death, resurrection, His ascension, and the Spirit being poured out, and that time in the future when He will come again to deliver His people. In other words, the last days refers to essentially the last 2,000 years of time. That's how I know we're living in the last days. Because people have been living in the last days for the last 2,000 years. See, why it's called the last days when it's 2,000 years long or more? The answer is because there was human history before us. Did you know that? Before this period of time, there was human history. Thousands of years, we don't know how many thousands of years of human history. We don't know very much about that except what the scriptures tell us. All of those people were looking forward to something. And the prophecies were essentially, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And then he came. God came into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And He came for the express purpose of being our sin offering and opening the way for sinners to come into the presence of a holy God through faith in His crucified and risen Son, so that whoever believes on Him will be saved. And then He went back to heaven and He sent the Holy Spirit. And now, throughout the last 2,000 years, we've been saying, He came. He came, he came, and by the way, he's coming, what? Again, he's coming again. Just as he came the first time, he is going to come again. And the scripture, God himself, calls this period of time the last days, because all of that was the first days. This is the last days. But the question The question is, is that all that the last days means? And I want to suggest to you that it is not. That is certainly the overarching meaning of the phrase, but the Scripture seems to indicate that there is, at the end of the last days, an intensification of things that have been true for the last 2,000 years, as we look at it. In other words, there is what might be called the last days of the last days. You understand what I'm saying? There is a culmination point when everything that's happened over the last 2,000 years begins to come together into some cataclysmic, momentous culmination of it all. And I want you to turn with me now to the book of 2 Timothy as we think about this aspect of it. 2 Timothy chapter 3. The Apostle Paul is writing his final letter. It is written to Pastor Timothy who is leading, he is the bishop of the church in Ephesus at this point in time, most people think. And Timothy has some questions, he has concerns, and Paul writes to him. And from his cell in Rome, he says, Timothy, mark this, mark this. There will be terrible times, when? In the last days. You see, the way Paul writes this, it's not only that now is the last days, but he seems to be pointing towards something that's not here yet. Paul didn't know when it would come. In some sense, it was already there even when he was in prison in sixty six sixty seven A.D. But he's writing this in the sense, Timothy, something's coming. Now we know it's been a long time since Paul wrote those words and it still hasn't fully come. But I want to say to you that what you and I are sensing in our spirit, I believe is what Paul was talking about here. And he begins then to unfold what the last days will be like. He says, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love and unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Does this sound like anything that you've been reading about or hearing about or see around you? And then he says, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. In other words, as these last days come, these things are going to be true, and it's all going to be in the cloak of, of spirituality. There's going to be some form of religion that will support and tie all of this together. It's a form of spirituality. But he says it denies the transforming power of God. And he says have nothing to do With them, for there are, they are the kind who worm their ways into homes and gain control over weak-willed women, who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil, always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Jannes and Jambres opposed Moses. So, or to the same degree, also these men oppose the truth. Men of depraved or perverted minds, who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. Only one other time does Paul use that term, or excuse me, is the New Testament use that term. Peter uses it, Second 2 Peter 2.12, in the same kind of a context of false teachers. And he says they have been weighed in the balance and rejected. They are reprobates. He says, but they will not get very far because as in the case of those men, the magicians in the court of Pharaoh that are named here, their folly will be clear to everyone. Now we don't have time to look at this in detail, but I want you to notice that generally Paul says The last days will be terrible. The word literally means hard to deal with. Stressful. Savage. This word is found only one other time in the whole New Testament. It is found when Matthew describes the two demonized men at Gadara. That is very suggestive, that the end times will be times that will be demonized, that the energy and the oppression that will come as a result of it being the end times will be originated in the demonic world. Now demons have always been here, but in the end times they will become especially agitated and active. And in some sense, restraint is taken off of them so that they will be very, very active in culture. And notice socially or culturally how Paul describes things in the last days. He uses 18 different descriptives. Uh, These are not complete. I'm sure these are suggestive only, but uh, he describes here how how people will be and how they will treat one another. What he describes essentially is a cultural collapse. You see, God has created human culture under government as a means of a natural restraint upon the sinful impulses of people. And when that culture collapses, the restraint is gone. And people become more free to do whatever pleases them. And that's the kind of a scene that he paints of the last days. I'm just going to kind of summarize these and draw some of the similar ones together. He says, in the last day, there's going to be a lot of love going on. But it will be love of oneself. The love of money. And the love of pleasure. Or we might say entertainment. Or what pleases me. These things will become the loves of people. And in essence, he's saying they become the deities of the last days. Self money, and pleasure. People will worship these and love these things. Warren Wiersbe writes, in this universe there is God and there are people and things. We should worship God, love people, and use things. But if we start worshiping ourselves, we will ignore God and start loving things and using people. That is exactly where we are today. The self-worship, he says, will feed pride and arrogance. And there will be a verbal abuse, a verbal contempt, a blasphemy against God. People will see themselves as God and therefore will not think twice about mocking the God of heaven. Ridiculing the God of heaven. This breakdown will reach into the family. There will be an arrogant disobedience to parents. Coupled with a lack of gratitude for what children have. And that will leak out into the culture. And he seems to describe here an entitlement kind of mentality. Whether it be the children of a family or the citizens of a nation. You owe me this and I will have it. That is the last days. And in this time, nothing is holy anymore, nothing, including marriage and the family. He says, it will be a time without natural affection. And, and the language there is talking essentially about the family. Parents in the relation to children, children in the relation to parents, without natural affection. The natural affection will be replaced by what is unnatural. Unnatural. And I don't need to tell you how much unnatural affection that there is going on in our, our culture today. And the people of California have spoken about that again. And I think we'll probably not end the battle there. Because the last days are a time of unnatural affection. There's an unwillingness to forgive in the last days or to be reconciled. People will demand their rights. They will demand their own ways. They will make false accusations and slander others. There will be lack of self-control. And this is evidenced by brutality. That is animalistic. It is is, uh, like wild animals. People will despise what is good and they will honor what is evil. It reminds me of what Isaiah the prophet said to the people of his day, woe or judgment to those that call good evil and evil good. In the last days, people will be traitors who will think nothing of betraying others, betraying their nation. They cannot be trusted. He says they are rash and reckless. They're puffed up with self-importance. And get this, all of this is in the context of religion. Whether it be the worship of self or the worship of some perverted form of Christianity. He's talking here about people who are spiritual and religious in their search. But they reject the truth. And therefore they're turned to the what? To the lie. He's talking about an apostate kind of religion and kind of Christianity. And so he he goes on then to describe spiritually what the last days are going to be like. They have a religion of sorts, but they are not the lovers of the true God. There's an outward form of spirituality, but there's no connection with them to the transforming power of God. They're like those Egyptian magicians who imitated God's miracles through Moses. They are counterfeits. If you'll allow me to quote Warren Wiersbe again, he says, Satan is an imitator of what God does. He counterfeits. The religious leaders in the last days will have a counterfeit faith, and their purpose is to promote a lie and resist the truth of God's word. They deny the authority of the Bible and substitute human wisdom and philosophy. Some of you brought me clippings from the paper a couple of weeks ago. We said, look what churches are saying here in Santa Clara Valley. They're saying no to Prop 8. These are the churches that Scripture is talking about here. And they're like churches that have departed from the faith and who are dependent upon human wisdom and human philosophy, not the truth of God. Wiersbe goes on to say they deny the authority of the Bible, they substitute human wisdom and philosophy, and in their attempt to be modern, they deny the reality of sin and people's need for salvation. Reprobate is the word Paul used to describe them. He wrote to Timothy in his first letter, and he said, the Spirit clearly says that in the later times, Some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Those are the days we live in, folks. Those are the days we live in. By looking at the character of the times, we know that we are living in what the Bible terms the last days. And I think the last days of the last days. Because the last days right now are building toward this culmination that we can all feel in our spirit. Now, what does living in this particular period of time mean? I have three ways of answering that, and I will do so quickly. Number one, it means we are greatly privileged. Greatly privileged. Not all generations can live in the days that you and I live in. I remind you of what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and he said, these things happened to them, people before this age, as examples and were written down in Scripture as warnings for us, for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Out of all of the millions and billions of people who've lived in in human history, You and I are privileged to live in the last days. And I believe this generation sitting here this morning, perhaps even in my lifetime, will see the culmination of this age. You and I are brought into the world for such a time as this. As much as Esther was born, to be the queen of Persia and save her people in those days. And so I say to you, don't be troubled by the times. Rejoice! We're greatly privileged to live as we do now. Our God is with us. And I believe this, if it's true that people in heaven can see us, I'm not sure it is. But if that is true, I believe this, that they are standing in heaven looking at us today saying, Oh, I wish I were alive right now. Because you see, they can see the whole panorama of God's plan, and they see where you and I live, and they say, Oh my goodness, to be alive in the world at this period of time. We're greatly privileged. But that brings me to the second point, and that is that we have greater responsibility because we live now. Jesus said to whom much is given, what? Much will be required. We have great privilege, but we have great responsibilities. And uh, I'm going to talk more about those next week, God willing, in my message. Let me just close by saying, thirdly, we live in the last days and we have a great hope. Because some of us may actually be alive when Christ returns for his church. But even if we are not, we know He's coming. And His coming is soon. Paul writes to Titus and he says, God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, the last days. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. While we wait for the hope. Hey, folks, the word wait there is not a passive waiting. It's not a sitting in the rocking chair kind of waiting. It's an active waiting, an eager waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ to appear. Now, I know there are people who kind of put this down And they say, oh, people have said for a long time he's coming. Yep, and when you say that, you're fulfilling God's word in Peter because Peter says people are going to say that in the last days. And there are others who say, oh, well, we don't know when he's coming or what the events are going to be like or what the order of things is, so let's just not even think about it. How unbiblical is that mindset? We are to be looking for him to return. My wife doesn't leave me very often. and I'm very grateful for that. But she did last January for a few days to help our daughter who was giving birth and she needed some help with the two children who were toddlers. And so Jeanette went back to Minnesota and left me alone in California for a few days. Now, you men, you've you've been here During that time, oh boy, I can do what I wanna do. I can eat dinner in front of the television, or I can go out and get it if I want. If I get dirty dishes, I just leave them in the sink, right? If I drop something on the floor, oh well, I'll get it later. I'll straighten up around here eventually. Isn't that right? That's the way it is. But then I remember, oh, She's coming. She's coming. And on the day that I I expect her to come, I go to the sink and I start scrubbing dishes. And I make that pile of dishes disappear. And I get the vacuum out and I sweep the floor. And I straighten up the magazines because she's coming. And I want to tell you something He's coming. He's coming. And the scriptures tell us the one who has that hope cleans up his life. So we need to have that hope burning brightly in our hearts. And every day when we get up, say, Lord, perhaps today. Perhaps today. God, help us to live with that burning brightly in our heart as we wait for the coming of the great God and our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for its assurance to us and how it teaches us and and ministers to us. And I pray, Father, that there be somebody here who doesn't know Jesus, that in light of the days we're living in, he or she would come to know him and trust the Savior and have that relationship with you and your power working in their lives. And I pray that all of us who know Jesus will look for Jesus and expect him to come and understand the days we're living in and be assured that we are on the side of victory. No matter what happens in our world, we know that Jesus is coming and the victory is ours in him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Team, sing for us. Hallelujah. Praise God. Isn't it just an amazing thing to know that we have a great hope in our Father? No matter what we make.